31, if you take your scripture and turn uh, with me to the Psalter, be reading uh, Psalm uh, 11 for our scripture uh, reading. Psalm 11. This is the uh, ever-living and abiding uh, word of the Lord. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They've fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds, and the upright shall behold his face. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for his help uh, to understand it, to love it, uh, and to live it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again, Lord, that as we end the Lord's day together, we can end that day hearing from you. Uh, Lord, we know that we can only truly hear if your Holy Spirit is at work among us to open our ears to this truth and then to apply that Uh, truth to our lives as we go out to serve you. And so we do pray, Lord, that you would graciously help the one who speaks and help all of us, Lord, who hear, uh, that we might truly hear you speak to us uh, even tonight. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Thirty years ago, uh, James Boyce, pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church, uh, wrote this about uh, this psalm. In the midst of this psalm, Probably as the sparing question asked by David's fearful but well-meaning friends, we have a classic question. You've probably heard it many times. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Said Boyce, what shall we do when the laws are not upheld, uh, when morality is undermined and evil sweeps on unchecked? What shall we do when the Bible is undermined and its teachings disregarded? When even churchmen seem to support the rising tide of secularism? What shall we do when family values are crumbling and the tide of frequent divorce sweeps forward with increasing damage to children and parents and society alike? What can we do when uh, everything around us, he wrote, seems to be giving way? Some, he says, counsel hiding, that is, running away from what's happening. David's response was to take refuge Uh, in the Lord. Now, Boyce was writing, of course, uh, that 30 years ago. And since that time, we've had the Supreme Court redefine marriage. Uh, We've had uh, the the explosion of uh, the acceptance of various forms of sexual immorality. Uh, We've had the uh, growing amount of Americans identify as being non-religious or simply don't care about religion at all. Uh, And a growing demand at times that God and Christianity and the word of God should have nothing to do with the state or the laws of the land at all. Uh, What is a believer to do? 
a couple of years ago, actually a number of years ago now, Rod Dreher wrote a book called The Benedict Option, uh, Benedict referring to a, a monk of old days, suggested in that book, The Benedict Option, that uh, our time of being a Christian in our country today is similar to the, uh, the first centuries of the church uh, when monasteries became the preservers of Christian culture. And that believers today need to see themselves as preserving the faith against the onslaught of anti-Christian sentiment, forming alternative communities. Maybe that's the answer, wrote Dreher. And of course, there are always those professing believers, of course, who believe that all you can do when the foundations are being destroyed is to uh, go with the flow and uh, fly the same banners on your church lawn uh, as you find in the culture at large. What can the righteous do? Uh, thankfully, we have the Word of God to help us, and we have Psalm 11. The first thing we find, uh, what can the righteous do, is stand fast. Notice what David says. Uh, in the Lord, uh, I take uh, refuge. We're not told what's going on in David's life at this time. Uh, verses 2 and 3 talk about, verses 2 especially, talks about the wicked bending the bow, putting their arrows on the string. Whenever we look at a psalm of David and uh, hear him uh, expressing those who want him dead, two big options, of course, always come to mind, first of all. Uh, one being when he was on the run from uh, King Saul, uh, and the other, of course, when he was fleeing from his son Absalom. And so those two things come to mind, maybe, uh, in this psalm. But that actually doesn't make any sense, because in this psalm, it seems that his friends who are counseling him to uh, flee like a bird uh, to the mountain, David, David kind of rejects that counsel. But in fact, when he was fleeing from Saul and fleeing from Absalom, that's exactly what he does. Uh, he goes and seeks, seeks, seeks refuge elsewhere. So it's probably unlikely that it's one of those. So it must be a different kind of... Situation. Those don't really fit this psalm. But the counsel here is in verse 2, or verse 1, from his friends, flee like a bird, fly away. And uh, we can see why such counsel would be attractive in this psalm. Why? Well, verse 2 says, the wicked are bending the bow at him. Uh, they have set him in their sights. They fitted the arrow to the string and are hiding themselves in the dark. Uh, so you can't see the deadly arrow Poised at uh, their, David's heart. There's enemies who want to destroy him lurking in the darkness, poised to strike at any minute. And so somehow fleeing like a bird to the mountain, as far away as possible, uh, seems attractive uh, when all these kind of things are happening. I was reminded this past week of our uh, new uh, Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson from Louisiana. Jim Daly from Focus on the Family wrote this in the Washington Times this past week about Mike Johnson, who's been uh, clear about his Christian faith. And Jim Daly said this, He has endured an unprecedented level of religious persecution and bigotry. Calling Mr. Johnson a Christian fundamentalist, former White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki declared, The Bible doesn't just inform his worldview, uh, it is his worldview. Uh-oh. Other media outlets have called him, that's Mike Johnson, the new face of Christo-fascism and a Christian nationalist. Other charges are too vile to print, says Jim Daly. The great irony unfolding in the national conversation is that just as most people rightly condemn the anti-Semitism raging on college campuses and elsewhere, an abiding anti-Christianism uh, is going mainstream, 
with a rise in attacks on the new Speaker of the House. In recent days, Mr. Johnson's judgment and ability to lead the country have been questioned because he holds the foundational Christian beliefs that are thousands of years old, specifically the sanctity of marriage, respect for human life, the supremacy and exercise of religious freedom. That the Speaker knelt with colleagues to pray on the House floor became ripe for mockery. In other words, says Daly, because Mr. Johnson espouses strong convictions on positions that millions of Americans profess today, he's somehow suspect and unqualified uh, to wield the gavel. Uh, if you were, if you were Mike Johnson, I would think that you would be tempted to want to flee uh, like a bird to the mountains. Find a place of uh, retreat, somewhere to hide, somewhere to get away from it all. That's what's going on here. So when all the old certainties are gone, nothing is secure or stable, who knows what tomorrow will bring? Things are just getting worse and worse and worse. It appears everything's falling apart. This is the, this is the counsel and advice of David's friends, but it's a counsel and advice of fear and not, and not faith. What does it look like when the foundations are destroyed? Well, we can think about our culture. We can also think about the Bible and think about the days uh, shortly after Joshua in Judges chapter 2, where the Bible had talked about, you know, the wonderful days of Joshua and the elders of Joshua's days. Everybody served the Lord during the days of Joshua. But immediately after that, it talks about how the, the people themselves turned away from the Lord and they started following idols and things just absolutely uh, fell apart. That was because of their own sin and turning against the Lord. And uh, the foundations were being destroyed. Well, verse 3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? What we learn, first of all, here is that what David knows he must not do is flee. What he must not do is flee. Instead, he begins the psalm by planting his standard firmly in the ground. He will stand fast. In the Lord, uh, I take refuge. My refuge is Yahweh. My covenant God, who's entered into a relationship with me, he's claimed me as his own. Um, the great I am, who never changes, is always faithful. I take refuge. I find shelter and safety and blessing and comfort and hope in him. I don't need to go to the mountains uh, because my refuge is the Lord and he's, and he's right here. That's the first thing. The world says... Look at your foundations. They're all broken up. No, says David, I stand fast upon the rock. In the Lord, I am safe and sound. John Calvin said this, When all men were striving, as it were, with each other to drive David to despair, he must, according to the weakness of the flesh, have been afflicted with great and almost overwhelming distress of mind. You ever been there? But fortified by faith, he confidently and steadfastly leaned on the promises of God and was thus preserved from yielding to the temptations to which he was exposed. As all men advised him to leave his country, retire into some place of exile where he might be concealed, inasmuch as there remained for him no hope of life, in the beginning of the psalm, said Calvin, he opposes to this perverse advice the shield of his trust in God. What can the righteous do? The first thing is stand fast. What can the righteous do? Uh, look up. Verse 4. Look up. The Lord, says David, uh, is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. 
So here is the conundrum, uh, uh, the answer to the conundrum of verse 3. What can the righteous do, says David? I look up and I know uh, that the Lord is in his holy temple and the Lord's throne is in heaven. The answer is not to flee physically to some perceived place of safety, but to find refuge in the Lord by setting our sights on him. Uh, In our current age uh, and culture, many believers see what is happening around them and find the answer not in looking up, uh, but by looking around. Especially, I think, by looking at at other states that you can move to. Uh, That's what we're doing. And we say, well, wait a minute, there's got to be a state here in the great United States of America where I can move to, where I can get away from this wickedness and this craziness and this uh, shaking of the foundations. You might say, my state is liberal, my state is turning its back on God. The answer is I need to move to Idaho uh, or Florida uh, or Oklahoma, uh, whatever it might be. Because in that state, in that state, I will be free. Uh, The answer for the wickedness around me, says this person, is to move somewhere uh, where there is less wickedness. For now. But of course, with one election, everything can change. Of course, there's nothing wrong with moving states. Uh, We just did it ourselves. We moved from California uh, to New Jersey. And uh, I'm not sure much changed. That's That's hard politically, but we weren't thinking about that. Uh, (laughs) Anyway. I'm just going to say that when we moved here, actually, I had it two or three times where we were at a store and someone said, uh, you know, uh, I said, oh, we just moved here. And uh, they said, oh, where did you move from? And I said, oh, from California. And they said, you moved to New Jersey? I don't know why they said that, but they did. And that's the, and that's, and that's the truth. Of course, the problem with that is um, if I think it's not a problem to move states, but if I move to another state thinking that somehow that other state will bring peace and freedom and joy and Christian living, I will be sadly disappointed. David doesn't flee. He actually goes deep into theological uh, reflection. The Lord is in his holy temple and the Lord's throne is in heaven. David had the Lord central to his vision. How often do we meditate on that truth? Wouldn't it be great for every minute that we spend meditating on the news? That we would spend maybe like ten minutes meditating on the word. You know, for every one minute that we're assaulted on the news with everything that's falling apart, ten minutes in the word of God to remind us of what is true, and to remind us of who God is. Oh, it's so important. Now, David's not thinking, of course, of the earthly temple here. It hadn't been built yet. The parallel line shows David is thinking of the temple of God in heaven. His throne is in heaven. His dwelling place, of which the earthly temple would be a copy or a picture to us. But here's the thing. This upward look of David reminds him that the Lord is holy, he's pure, he's altogether righteous, Uh, The Lord who, uh, despite the fact the foundations here below are seemingly broken up, the Lord has not left his position uh, as the holy, righteous, supreme ruler. Remember, he's on the throne and judge over all. We've got to look up always 
to remember that truth. He's not left the temple. He's not abdicated the throne. As the psalmist will say elsewhere, thankfully about the Lord, he never slumbers or sleeps. He's always alert and awake to all that's happening in the world. No matter the chaos of our lives, culture, nation, world, uh, all is as it should be in the heavens above. And because that's true, David can be at peace and at rest. Uh, he, the Lord's holy. He's to be worshipped. His throne's secure. He rules and reigns over all. There's no need to flee, but to look up and behold your God. When I think about this passage, I think about, I, I think about Stephen in Acts 7. Where he, he gives this wonderful history of the Lord's work, redemptive history, all that God has done in the past. And this is while they're, they're bearing down on them. And the Bible says they, they, they grinded their teeth at him and charged him. But, but the Bible says that Stephen, uh, what does Stephen do? Well, Stephen saw, the, saw Jesus standing uh, beside, the, beside God, beside the throne, standing beside the throne in heaven. And that's what he's, and that's what he's seeing. Even as the Bible says they're bearing down on him uh, to stone him to death. What he sees uh, is the Lord. Aiming, even as he is being martyred uh, for the faith. Again, said John Calvin, it's a signal proof of faith to take and to borrow. This is a wonderful picture. To take and to borrow, so to speak, light from heaven to guide us to the hope of salvation when we're surrounded in this world with darkness on every side. Think about this picture. It's important for us when, of the faith to take, as it were, light from heaven and to, to bring it down. When we seem to be surrounded by darkness on every side. All men, said Calvin, acknowledge that the world is governed by the providence of God. But when there comes sad confusion of things which disturbs their ease and involves them in difficulty, there are few who retain in their minds the firm persuasion of this truth. He's just saying when we get squeezed, we forget that the Lord is in his holy temple and he is and he is on the throne. Oh, we need to remember it. Mom, need, mom needs to know this when Johnny throws his food on the floor for the third time. The Lord is in his holy temple and, and he's on the throne. Um, married folks need to know this when a spouse falls into temptation. It seems like their marriage is falling apart. The Lord's in his holy temple and he's on the throne. Single people need to know this when they wonder what the Lord's purpose is for their life, if they'll ever be married, what's their role in the kingdom of God. Uh, the Lord is in his holy temple, and he reigns on the throne. Widows and widowers need to know this when they're overcome by loneliness. The Lord's in his temple and on his throne. Young people need to know this uh, when the world they see all around them and their parents seem to always be talking about how chaotic the world is. Young people need to know this. The Lord is in his holy temple, and the Lord is on his throne. And we take refuge in him. Churches need to know this. When compromise or apathy uh, looks tempting. No, the Lord is in his holy temple. And he is on the throne. So, what can the righteous do? Well, you can stand fast. Uh, you can look up. Know this. Know this, says David. First of all, know this, that he sees. This is what we read, verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see and his eyelids test the children of man. He sees, could be translated, he observes, he tests, or he, uh, he examines. Uh, the Bible says that the, that the, the, Lord, uh, the, Lord, the Lord sees all. He observes 
all. In Psalm 139, uh, the psalmist says, even darkness is as light to the Lord. The Lord sees all. He observes all. And this is important because this psalm has said the wicked are shooting in the dark, thinking their sin is hidden, aiming their arrows at David. And they're doing that in the darkness. But all is seen by the Lord. Theologically, of course, this is called God's omniscience. He knows and sees uh, all. In Hebrews 4, uh, when it comes to the living and abiding uh, word of God, we're told that that word that comes to us uh, penetrates uh, deep within us, uh, dividing uh, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And then the Bible says this, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give uh, account. Now, that's, that's supposed to be great comfort to the people of God. That abuse, for instance, that was committed in the dark, uh, God knows. That hidden pain that you've never shared with anybody, uh, God sees. And, of course, to the unrepentant, uh, this is meant to convict us. You think no one saw, you think no one heard, you think no one knows the sinful desires that lurk within, but God does, and he and He sees He sees clearly. So what can the righteous do when the foundations are destroyed? Well, know this, the Lord sees and, and examines all, and nothing is, nothing is done that he does not see. Know this, says David, um, know the end of the wicked. Know what happens to those who continue to live in wickedness, uh, in this world, and are purposely, in fact, destroying the foundations uh, upon which life uh, is built. Notice what the Bible says, verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. We were talking about this a little bit in uh, adult discipleship this morning. Biblically, uh, we can't separate how we live from who we are. We sin uh, because we are sinners. Dale Davis wrote this, according to this verse, You may need to revise your theological cliches, he says, about God hating the sin, but loving the sinner. He hates, so he will rain down a raging retribution, yet Yahweh loves. He loves righteous deeds. He hates, he loves. All of this tells us, says Davis, that God is not a mere three-letter word. The God of the Bible, I think this is wonderful, he says, the God of the Bible is not a formless blob of celestial protoplasm, not some sort of cosmic jello, With a sickly smile, he has a nature, a character, positive and negative. He's not the grand relativist, but the living extremist, says Davis. Let the flaming passion of these words slither down the throat of your soul and see how different this virile, biblical God is from the sentimental deity men imagine. There's nothing bland about Yahweh. The Bible says he hates, 
the wicked, yes. The wicked are under the wrath of God. Sinners are under the wrath of God. That's why, that's why the gospel is the good news. Because Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Said the Apostle Paul, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, for the worst. You remember John 3.16, it talks about, for God so loved the world, gave his only Son, that those who believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. But those who don't believe in him, uh, the wrath of God uh, remains on them. So it's not that Jesus comes to a neutral people. Jesus comes into the world to people who are sinners, who are all under the wrath of God, but God has graciously sent his Son, so that sinners can be saved through faith in Jesus. Friends, the point is this. If God doesn't love sinners, we're in a heap of trouble. Because then no one would be loved. Praise God, he does love sinners. And he shows it to us in the fact that he sent his son. But if you do not believe in him, you remain under the wrath of God. It is not sin that is punished in hell. It is sinners who are punished in hell. Those who have not embraced their only hope of life. That, says David, is the the end of the wicked. And whereas they are planning in the darkness to destroy the righteous, to destroy David, it's the wicked themselves who will reap what they sow. This verse reminds us of Sodom and Gomorrah, the great biblical example of judgment. It speaks here of fire and sulfur and scorching wind. Uh, here the wicked are described as those who love violence. And it's in the light, friends, of course, again, of this wickedness and its judgment that the words of Jesus and the Gospels come to their full force. For those who hear the Gospel today, we looked at it last week in the Gospel of Mark because the Bible tells us that though here the Bible speaks uh, of fire and sulfur and scorching wind for those who love violence, uh, the wicked, just as it was in the day of Sodom and Gomorrah, remember the Bible says that those who hear of Jesus, that those who see the, the works of Jesus, those who hear the announcement of good news through Jesus and yet walk away from Jesus, the Bible says it will be worse for them than it ever is for Sodom and Gomorrah. This is the end, says David of the wicked, of those who reject the gospel of Jesus. And know this, says David, not only he sees not only the end of the wicked, but know the end of the righteous. That's what he says, verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous, or it could be translated, the Lord tries uh, the righteous, examines the righteous. Then verse 7, for the Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds, 
Uh, the upright, or the righteous, shall behold his, his face. Now, when it says that the Lord tests the righteous, it could mean there that could be that to that testing through trials. The Bible certainly talks about how the righteous God's people are tested and purified through trials. We're perfected through difficulty. Uh, But it could also simply mean that we're tried and approved or or vindicated. That is, we're tested and examined in the sense of an affirmation that this is the genuine article. The Lord tests the righteous. Are these, in fact, my people? Uh, this past uh, couple of weeks ago, our family, on our family day, we went over to Pennsylvania, uh, over to Nottingham, where they have this, uh, this HERS chip factory. And we had this uh, wonderful hour and a half uh, tour of how they make and package popcorn and pretzels and potato chips. Because you know, 150,000 pounds of potato chips are made there every day. It seems like a lot. How do they make sure, and we were told, how do they make sure that they don't get some ugly chips in the bag? You know, chips with green or brown spots. Uh, They were explaining this to us as we watched. As this huge amount of uh, potato chips uh, goes through this this chute, they have high-powered lasers uh, scanning every chip as it drops through this huge chute. And if that high-powered laser detects any chip uh, that has some kind of defect, there's this high, they said there's this, this high-pressured air blaster that blows that individual chip off the line. <laughs> and uh, they said it's like 97% accurate. So if you get a bag of hers chips, there's only a 3% chance you're going to get one with green or brown in it. The Bible says the Lord tests, tries, vindicates the righteous, and he is 100% accurate. The Lord is righteous, and uh, if we had to depend or come up with our own righteousness in order to pass through this testing of course uh, we would be hopeless Uh, but sadly that is what in the Old Testament and even among professing believers today we still try to do that the Apostle Paul wept about it when he thought about all his his fellow Israelites And, and he put it this way in Romans 10 brothers my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear with them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And said Luther, as he reflected on Romans and came to know the Lord Jesus as his Savior, the just shall live by faith. I'm only righteous by faith. Righteousness is a gift from God that I receive by faith alone. And the Lord 
tries the righteous, tests the righteous, and it's only those who have that gentle faith, true faith, that by 100% accuracy will be tested and approved and vindicated by God, like Abraham, like David, like Lydia, like the Philippian jailer. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds, and the upright shall behold his face. This is the most wonderful thing about this passage. Know, he sees, know the end of the wicked, but know the end of the righteous. What's the end of the righteous? Well, the beginning of the psalm, you might think that the greatest end of the righteous is simply that we find a place of refuge. That when the foundations are being destroyed, uh, we can find a safe place to hide. But that's not actually the, the end of the psalm. The actual joy of the righteous is not simply that we find in the Lord our refuge, and even strength. But here, David says, the end of the righteous, the glorious end to which we're heading, is not destruction like the wicked who love violence, but the end of the righteous, grace the Lord by faith, righteous by faith, is that they shall behold the face of God. The end of the righteous is not simply to um, uh, receive uh, strength and help and Um, comfort from God, but it's to have communion with God. It's to have fellowship with God. And that's why in the New Testament in 1 John, John says, we are the children of God. And what we we will be, we don't yet know yet. We don't don't yet see that. We are children of God, though. But when we we see him, uh, uh, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And that is the that is the joy that is held, and that's the motivation in John 2, for then, purif- then those who know this hope purify themselves as he is pure, because we know that when we see him, we will be like him. Friends, the goal of the Christian life is not simply to know that when the foundations are destroyed, we can find refuge in God, but that, in fact, the goal here is not only to find refuge in him, but that we would behold him. We know he's on the throne. We know he's in his temple. But because he's righteous and he loves righteous deeds, the righteous shall also see his face. Let me end with this. Derek Kidner, Bible commentator, said, If the first line of the psalm showed where the believer's safety lies, the last line shows where his heart should be. God as refuge may be sought from motives that are too self-regarded, but to behold his face is a goal in which only love, only love, has an interest. And so that's the, that's the hope here that David holds out for the righteous. What can the righteous do when the foundations are destroyed? Stand fast and look up and know these things. He sees the wicked end in destruction, the righteous end. Beholding the glorious, righteous, holy presence and face of their God who saved them by his grace. This is our hope, even in the world today uh, in which we live. May it be our hope. Let's pray uh, together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this psalm. We thank you, Lord, that in, uh, in difficult times, as David was in in this psalm, difficult times that we ourselves will and do find ourselves in, 
uh, Lord, perilous times, times of persecution, times of uh, wondering what the future might hold. Oh, Lord, we pray that we would again take time to go back to your word, to know uh, that you are in your holy temple, that you are on the throne, uh, and to know that it is only through the, the glorious, gracious work of the Lord Jesus Christ that we who are uh, under wrath by birth, that we who uh, are born with a sinful nature, uh, Lord, that we only escape that wrath because of your great love for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. That while we were yet sinners, uh, we were made alive in Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you for your grace and mercy. We pray that we bring that message, Lord, of Christ, uh, the good news for sinners, uh, Lord, to the world in which we live this week. Uh, Lord, that others, too, might come to know this glorious Savior, that together uh, we might behold his face. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.